Uh, our working assumption, we spent time defining what mysticism is and uh, how it has a, um, uh, a double meaning in the dictionary, both as uh, something that's illuminating and something that's uh, mystifying. Hello. Hi. Oh, that's okay. I got just got two sentences out. It's just fine. <laughs> Do you want to sit by the table? There's one over here, James. Oh, were there just is, is that is there just one chair there? Two in front. Sorry. That's quite all right. Great. Good. My working assumption that mysticism, that human beings among our many levels of perception have an innate capacity to perceive the life as all interconnected and in that perception there is something uplifting and um, illuminating about that. That that's an experience that we all have at times. Sometimes we're analyzing and separating and mm, working the details, and sometimes we are blessed with moments where everything seems to fit together and where we're aware of our own humble and yet connected nature to all that is. We're blessed with that. Uh, I was explaining last time that when people have that experience, they tend to want to have it again. <laughs> I was explaining last time that some of us have it uh, in, have, that different people have this experience in different ways, just as there are different learning styles, different temperaments, different orientations. Everybody has their own way, their own way of perceiving and then interpreting that experience, right? Because an experience is not, is not something that, that has words attached to it. We attach the words to it as we try to describe it. You could call mystical literature the attempt to describe that experience. And uh, also an attempt by describing it to create a roadmap might be one way of describing it, but that's a little too linear. Because the mystical experience is not something you can summon by uh, going through a certain sequence of steps. Um, so there's an attempt to go through a certain sequence of steps, but maybe a roadmap isn't the best uh, metaphor. Um, a mood, lighting, um, a sense of um, what's possible. But the problem with language is that it's limiting, right? Because uh, so we have to, w language is our blessing. It allows us to, as, as a species, it allows us to communicate our experiences to one another. It's also our curse in that it's never sufficient to actually communicate the entirety of an, of an experience. So we have to treat, when we're talking about word an experience that transcends language, we are going to use language, but we have to use it understanding that it's speaking in metaphors, not in, literal, not in literal terms, and that the metaphors are there to guide us towards something that we can sense and understand, 
but not, not in a um, instruction manual sort of way, right? Judaism's in love with language. Language is the centerpiece of, uh, of Judaism, you could say. We, we are the people of the book, and we find God, spiritual Jews who are spiritual seekers, and take the Jewish tradition seriously, find God by diving into the text. You know, sort of like if you imagine the words on the page uh, as uh, that you could dive in between them, you know, sort of like, here we go, open the Torah and, you know, jump in. That's, we use the words to go beyond the words. That's the Jewish way. What a wonderful turnout. Hi. Hi. But if God is all around, why do you have to look Be, for him? Isn't that a beautiful paradox of the human experience? If God is all around, why do you have to look for God? That is one of the questions that spiritual traditions try to answer all the time. If we have this sense, then what are we doing here? You know? And um, I would say... There's, there's not an answer to that question, right? I would say that human beings experience life on multiple levels and that they all need each other. We need to, uh, and we need to be able to um, do the dishes and go shopping and if we can be aware of God being present in all those moments, we are very fortunate beings. Most of us lose the forest for the trees, which is why religions organize special gatherings called rituals in which you stop doing that other stuff and focus together on saying, Yit kadal v'yit right? You say, it's big. It's bigger, it's biggest. And we try to practice in ritual situations, expanding our minds so that we can carry some residue of that some into the rest of our lives where, it's, where we lose it in the details. You know, and that's the way it is. There's lots of explanations why it's that way. Um, the Jewish mystical explanation is that the world is literally the clothing of divinity. The, 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 the levushot, the garb, um, and that underneath or within all of physical reality are divine sparks. And we're going to talk about that more later. And that if we can, find, if we can train ourselves to, as it were, perceive the divine sparks in everything, then we can reveal God's presence in the world, not through our attention to it. And I think I said last time, unless I said this somewhere else, it's been a long week. I think I said last time that revelation, was I talking about, revelation is an important word because it means to uncover. That's what reveal means. So that if you're having a revelation, you are not having a new insight. You're having a new thought, not a new thought. You might be having a new insight. Insight's a beautiful word. It means to see into. 
right? You, or to reveal, to uncover. There's this sense we have as people that beneath our everyday uh, pedestrian perceptions, there is something shimmering underneath it, something that we can't grab, can't quite put our words to, and yet makes life juicy. Um, uh, uh, somebody said, I don't know exactly what a soul is, but I know when I've lost it. And I've, I've been remembering that recently. Did I say that last time? I don't know exactly what a soul is, but I know when I've lost it. In other words, that, that um, richness that's under the surface, we know it's there. We know what it is. We know when we're filled with it. Um, we know when we've lost it. And yet you can't, um, you, you, you can't grab it and hold on to it. Um, so, the, so, one of the, so I would say that different traditions tell stories to try to illuminate why we're here in this incarnation, you know, why if we sense a spiritual reality, and hey, I don't have the answer, um, but it's clearly the way it is, that we have the capacity simultaneously to, uh, to operate in the world while we sense and want to acknowledge something mysterious and infinite behind and around our lives at all times. Fantastic. So, a great place, so one of the points I made last week that I want to make this week and I want to make next week is that mysticism, even though, which has gotten a name as something that's um, way out, you know, like who needs it? Or it's for those, those you know, um, is actually this perception of the wondrous and infinite in everything is all over the Torah, right? And we ignore it at our great, not peril, but impoverishment. So let's look just at this week's Torah portion, okay? It stares at us. Here, look, at, look in your Chumash on page 166. 166. This is this week's portion. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He's running for his life, right? He's stolen the blessing from his brother Esau who says, I'm going to kill him. And his mother says, you better get going. And he leaves with nothing but his staff in his hand. And he runs. He's got, no he's got nothing. That's important to enter this story. He's not encumbered, right? He's, he's just, he's out there, Valderi, Valdera. I mean, he's scared, but he's, uh, he's also just walking with his staff. If you've got um, the, the computer case in one hand and the smartphone in the other and the kid pulling on your elbow and the to-do list in your back pocket, 
you're less likely to have the experience that Jacob's going to have. It's, it's why we try to clear the slate. It's why Shabbat, in its essence, is an attempt to stop so that we can rediscover what's underneath all the busyness of our life. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain place. Okay, that's the translation. The Hebrew in verse 11, Vayifka Bamakom. What's Bamakom mean? The place. the place. Okay, again, the English is going to fail us continually here. All right? He, what's Vayifka? Uh, encountered. Lifka is to, uh, also is to bang into. He encountered, he, he came upon the place. Okay? And he, he lodged there. He slept there. Ki Vahashemesh, the sun had set. And he took from the stones of that place, and he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place with a stone as a pillow. Vayishkav Bamakom. He took from one of the stones of Hamakom, of the place, and he lay down in the place. Okay, this is going to be very important when he wakes up from his dream. <laughs> he might have a headache, but he's also going to have something else. Yeah, I know, a rock for a pillow. Vayachlom, mm. um, and he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the ground, and its top reached to the heavens, and angels of God were going up and going down on it. And behold, because the Hebrew says, v'hine, it's an important word, just like the word hineni, which means here I am, v'hine is from the same root, and it's indicating here, behold, yud hey vav hey. remember from the uh, story of the, gold, of the uh, burning bush last time, this, this name that's not a name is standing above him, nitzav alav, beside him, Okay, I'd say above him, I don't know if it matters. And says, I am yud the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. Uh, the land on which you are lying, I will assign, give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Ufaratsta, yama, v'kedma, tzafona, v'negma. Anyone who knows Hebrew might know that song. Um, you shall spread out towards the sea, and towards the east, and towards the north, and towards the Negev, and the south. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. And behold, see so here's again, I will be with you. That's what, he's, that's what the voice says to Moses also. What is that presence that will be with us, but that we forget is there? What is that? And I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this earth. I will not abandon you until I have done what I said and have promised you. And here's where we go. So that's the dream. Whoa. <laughs> and Jacob woke up and said, what a weird dream. And he got back up and he kept walking. Right? That's how we might treat that. Because we are accustomed to thinking of dreams as not real. But if you're in the biblical mode, dreams are where you connect with the bigger 
with your purpose. You dream it. Now, we use that language still. I have a dream, right? But because of our biases today, most of us, unless we're devoted, say Jungians, uh, we, will, we would say, boy, that was some dream. <laughs> wow, that was weird. Man, man, okay, now let me look at my New York Times and get going. You know, that's not to say the New York Times is bad. I, I read the New York Times every morning. That's why I said it. But a dream in the Torah is a moment where your life is going to be transformed. When Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, it's a transforming vision, right? So the Torah is completely clear that that's what dreams are. And why that's where mysticism comes in, right? The problem with dreams and mysticism, if you say it was dreamy, then it's kind of vague, right? You can't grab a dream. You can't delineate a dream. It's a set of images that give you a sense of meaning that you can't quite articulate, right? And yet, this is the realm in which we experience the oneness of all. Because how do you articulate that anyway? Yes, Barbara? What's the difference between a dream and a vision? Not much in Jewish thinking. There are different levels of what the Jewish tradition calls prophecy. Prophecy in, in the Jewish tradition is when you, when you become connected and a mouthpiece or a conduit for the divine message. So dreams are considered one kind of conduit. Uh, and of course, Moses is considered the highest connector to the one. Why? What does it say about Moses? Anybody remember when he dies, what they say about him? There's none like Moses. None like Moses. Who? Face to face. Something about Moses' greatness is not just that he's a lawgiver. Moses is not just a teacher of law. Again, that's how he gets reduced in our rather sad discounting of spiritual inspiration in secular conversation. Moses is the one who can draw down the divine inspiration without, and share it with everybody without riddles and without dreams, it says. Uh, whereas, the, whereas other prophets see, have this experience in night visions or in dreams, in, day, in waking visions or in dreams, but not Moses. How does the Torah describe Moses' spiritual transparency when he comes down from the mountain the second time? His face was giving off carne or rays of light when he comes down holding the tablets. Do you remember that passage at the end of Kitisa? Um, so what is, what is that saying? And the people couldn't look at Moses, and he had to put a veil over his face in that passage, it says. This is symbolic. You probably know that in one of the great misreadings, uh, some of you know this? Mm, yeah, Karnaim are both horns and rays. And so it becomes part of the Christian anti-Semitic um, mythology that says he had horns. He had horns coming off his head. And that fit right in with medieval Christianity's equation of Jews with the devil and the demonic. And so Michelangelo just naturally, his, his sculpture of Moses has, no, has no, nothing demonic about it, but Moses has horns because that's what the Bible says. No, that's not what it says. He has rays of light coming off his face. 
This is an attempt to, Im to give it an image how radiant he was. When you see someone and you say, why are you so radiant? What are they giving off? What is that? What, is, what are they filled with? You don't need to have mystical language or many mumbo-jumbo to know what we're talking about here. And then, there, and then the idea of Moses as the ultimate transparent human who can be the teacher of that divine light and translate it into the Torah for us. He's a spiritual master, is what we might say in contemporary language. He's our, our guru, except that Judaism eschews gurus, and so intentionally Moses' place of burial is never known so that we can't turn him into an idol, so that we don't always remember that it wasn't Moses. It wasn't the man Moses himself. It was what he brought through him that was the gift to us. That makes sense, everybody, right? Yes. Um, so, uh, I'm having fun. All right. So, verse 16. Verse 16. Yaakov mishnato. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Achen, which means surely, undoubtedly, wow, yesh yod vavhe bamakom hazeh. The infinite presence of God is in this is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Vayira, and he trembled, and he said, Ma nora hamakom hazeh. How awesome is this place? Elohim. It must be nothing other than the very house of God. And this is the gateway to heaven. And he names the place Beit El, Bethel, which is where the Woodstock Festival was, by the way. I always think that's great. I'm, I, I'm the rabbi in Woodstock. I love that the Woodstock Festival happened in Bethel, where everyone said, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. The, the Woodstock Festival happened in a place called the House of God. I love that. I think that's marvelous. Okay. Jacob wakes up from his dream, but he's actually more awake. He's waking up from his waking dream. His waking dream prevents him from noting and being aware that this place is the house of God, and God is in this place. And what do we mean by God? The creator. The creator, the, the place from which... We don't have to explain it, because every one of us has had an experience that gave us, that made us just stop and say, our jaws dropped, this is holy ground. It could be you know, the easy ones are sunsets. You know, thank God for sunsets. One of the members of my congregation, Gail Albert, her, one of my favorite stories is she was in the supermarket one day and just had this moment of reverie in the aisle of the supermarket. And it's like it was all beautiful. Do you understand what I'm saying? And uh, then she realized she was in the Grand Union. And she says, oh, the Grand Union. <laughs> I love that story. 
Even the supermarket was called the Grand Union. I, I love that. Um, so, and Jacob trembles and exclaims, how awesome is this place? God is in this place, and I, until this moment, was not aware of it. That's what revelation is. When something makes you stop in your tracks, and you realize you're standing on holy ground. That's a mystical experience, everyone. I called this class demystifying mysticism. That's what we call a mystical experience. We're all capable of having it. It happens to us all the time. Jewish mysticism is that branch of mysticism, that, that branch of Jewish study that focuses intensively on these events in our Torah and in our lives, right? It doesn't mean that Jewish mystics are disinterested in ethics, in ritual performance, in um, um, all, all the different levels that make us mensches. Yeah, in all the different, in, in everything that we do, it means that they, they are particularly focused on wanting to wake up and say, this is the place. Now what is our, and, and therefore Torah is always interpreted in multiple levels. Because some of you probably already know what the place gets identified with geographically in Jewish tradition. You, anybody? Yeah. The, the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. I mean, well, oh, the yeah. Mount. yeah, this place gets identified that where was he? He was on the Temple Mount before it was the Temple Mount, because that's the place. But that's a geographical sort of mythic, historical, where you take, where you take this experience and you kind of locate it somewhere physically so that you can all, we can all go up to the mountain of God together, right? Uh, then we get confused that somehow that mountain is the place. It's the place that we, we all go to to pilgrimage, but any place is the place. A place becomes the place when we realize that it's the place. That this is the place where what? Where God is. The Grand Union. Um, now some of you also know that this is why one of the names of God in the rabbinic tradition is Hamakom, the place. That's one of the names. So you may not be aware that there are scores of na descriptive names of God <coughs> in Judaism. One of the most prominent ones among the rabbis is Hamakom, the place. In the Haggadah, Baruch Hamakom Baruch Hu. Blessed is the place. What a great name for God. The place. Any place becomes the place when our attention is turned towards looking for the divine imprint in that place. Does that make sense, everybody? So, so much of mysticism is really about how we learn to pay attention. And mystical techniques, like those who practice meditation or those prayer, are all techniques to train, help us train ourselves to pay attention to uh, looking at the world in a way where we see that this is the place and that we're all here together 
and that we're surrounded by mystery and let's be together and love each other. Right? That's the place. Amen. So, um, all the mystical techniques, all the spiritual techniques you hear about, for me, that seems to be what their goal is. Um, anyone who loves to hike, I love to hike. Somehow, I'm not good at sitting still, so I've never been, never meditated much. I like praying because you get to sing and move, um, unless you're in a synagogue where everyone sits like statues. But um, where <laughs> there's a few of those. Um, but that's why I became a rabbi, so I wouldn't have to sit in the, that one. So, uh, but I love hiking because I need to move, and I walk and walk and walk and walk, walk, walk and my brain slowly kind of unwinds and spools down, and my thoughts get a little more spacious, and eventually I go, oh, this is a nice place, <laughs> you know? And I arrive, where? In the place. So that's how our Torah portion begins. It's so, so beautiful, isn't it? Uh, and uh, if we think of it as only a dream, it's because of our impoverishment in knowing how to pay attention to this stuff. Uh, so uh, let's see. I think I want to look at one more thing in the Chumash before we, uh, I turn to... Oh, yes. Okay. Let me find the page and tell you to turn. Let's look at the Garden of Eden for a minute. Why not? So, um, look on page 14. Page 14. God places the Adam. Again, it says man in the English. It says, Ha-Adam, the human? i, I got to figure out a better way than just say, you know. So, but, so God placed the human into the garden. And from the ground, the uh, yud heh vav -Hey God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food with the Eitz HaChayim Betoch Hagan, the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Two amazing trees. Remember, now they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, good and bad, so that they, and, but then God says to the, whoever, whoever's hanging out in heaven with God, um, now let, we gotta get them out of here or they're gonna eat from the tree of life and have eternal life. It's a great story, we're not gonna belabor it too much. What I wanna point out is that in the, now, in the previous, um, now in the next verse, verse 10, it says, and a river issues from Eden. Anybody know what Eden means in Hebrew? Oh, delight. It's the garden of delight. Ad, ed, any, uh, you know what you named Adin or Edna? It's a beautiful name. Hmm? Gentle, delightful, both of those. Um, the Garden of Delight. There's something about the experience of being in that place of undifferentiated connection to everything that's filled with delight. Um, and a river issues 
and divides and d- goes in four branches in all four cardinal directions. So we are not in a geographical location here in the garden. This is the language of myth and dream. We are in the place from which the goodness of life issues. It issues forth. And there is a tree in the middle of that garden called the tree of life. And four river, a river issues from there and spreads out in all directions to water the earth. This is a spiritual metaphor. The idea is that there is a place of inexhaustible, bounteous energy and delight that we have been expelled from, right? Maybe this, this is an, an effort to explain the question you asked, Barbara, through a story. Well, if everything is, if we know that this is all there, then what the heck's going on? The Garden of Eden story is another attempt to tell a story about what happened. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. I love this story. Um, But we get expelled from there. And two cherubim with fiery uh, swords, whirling, firing swords, block the entrance to the garden. And here we are left to earn our living by the sweat of our brow. (sighs) Bummer. Um, However... What's another name for Shabbat? Either me'en olam haba, a taste of the world to come. Another word for the world to come is the Garden of Eden. We, can ta- we, have, the, we have the ability to taste again, to experience in some, some um, attenuated form, some, some, some attenuated is not exactly the word I was like, re- it's like the flow has been reduced, but it's still flowing. That tree of life in the middle of the garden, even though we don't live in the garden all the time anymore. Yes? I think of, of what an example of human nature. Here they are in the garden of delights. Yeah. And instead of going, everything's so good, it's like, but I want that. <laughs> and if we're surrounded in the garden of delight that God is everywhere, we still say, but I want a different mystical experience. I want what that guy, what that right. mystic has that I can't have. So another, another of the brilliant perceptions of the rabbis about people is that we're born with this intense wanter, right? I think of babies as like born wanters, right? We want. And... It's that wanting that fuels our life force, right? But it's also that wanting that can cut us off. And that's one of the paradoxes and difficulties of being a human being from enjoying and appreciating the fact that we have everything we need at any, at any given moment, despite all our wantings. In this moment, I can drink from the river that flows from the garden right at this moment. And it's another paradox of our human experience. That's why the um, rabbis say, in my opinion, that's why they say, Ezehu Gibor, who is truly mighty, HaKovesh et Yitzro, the one who masters his passions. Um, because in so doing, uh, you can, um, you're not ruled by them. You're not ruled by your wants. And growing up in the Jewish tradition is training our children how to master their passions so that they can put them in service of the Yetzer HaTov, of the greatest good. 
that's a whole other fascinating discussion. Rabbi, you were going to say what Shabbat means? Shabbat is also known as Me'en Olam Haba, a taste of the world to come. And the world to come in Jewish tradition is understood as a return to the garden. Here we are with this perception that we're in some way exiled from the garden. Yet we have the capacity, not permanent, not as a permanent status, but through our lives to taste that, get a taste of being back in the garden. And in so doing, we um, nourish our lives from, from t- drinking from that stream. Uh, I saw another hand. Yes? I, somebody told me an interpretation of the, um, the rivers flowing, that, this, that they actually represent the uh, four vessels that emanate from our heart. You mean the four, the the right, four the, the oh cool. And um, so, uh, so if you have the tree, that it's almost as if we um, we have the Garden of Eden within ourselves, and that these I, I don't I don't know how to put it all together, but it's just such a beautiful image. To it's me beautiful. The Garden of Eden isn't somewhere; it's the place. So it is within ourselves in the sense that when we become aware of it residing in ourselves, it's here, right? It's not a physical location. This is a myth. And when I use the word myth, just like the word mysticism has two meanings in the dictionary, myth can mean sort of a falsehood. Myth can mean a story that embodies a truth that can't be empirically quantified but we know it from our experience. To me, it's like, you know, when we talk about being made, created in the image of God, it's as if we have that place of God right here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, by created, being created in the image of God, Jewish mysticism teaches, Luriana Kabbalah teaches, we have a spark of God within us. And we're going to talk about that probably next time. Because what I wanted to focus on now, here, we can close our Chumashim now. Thank you, Chumash. So how many ways, uh, by the way, in closing, I want to say, I love reading the Torah as an ethical document. I love reading it as an anthropological and uh, historical artifact. I love reading it as a spiritual journey document. I love all of those. To explicate mysticism, I'm reading it to you on that level. That doesn't negate the other levels. That's the good news about stories, is that they can be interpreted on multiple levels, and you'll never have the final interpretation, right? So I just really appreciate that. I want to say over and over again that this class is about Jewish mysticism. That doesn't mean the other ways we interpret Torah are any less valid. Okay, so now I'm going to focus, since we just have three times, I want to, to do this, I thought a subject that we should spend time on is the tree of life. Because the tree becomes, if not, one of, if not the central metaphor, then certainly one of the absolutely central metaphors of Jewish mystical imagination and thought. The tree of life that stands in the middle of the garden. I think our tradition is not the only tradition that has sacred trees, right? Or that, or that glorifies the tree. 
or that uses it as a metaphor. Um, I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Yeah. Um, a tree has its unseen roots in the ground. We don't see them that draw up nourishment and water from the unseen up this trunk and into these branches that flower, that bud and flower and fruit. Um, a tree is a magnificent metaphor uh, in addition to being magnificent in and of itself. We tap our maple trees at home. My wife taps, I help. And it's a miracle. But there is, uh, in the middle of the winter, Tubishvat, I love Tubishvat because in the middle, of, shortly after Tubishvat, the, um, the sap starts running. When the days are above freezing and the nights are below freezing, and the sap is running hidden within the tree. And it rises during the day, and it descends during the night. And we put a little spigot in there, and it pours into our bucket. Uh, it's like the elixir of life. It's just amazing. And it's like a present, a gift from the tree, and we boil it down and we have maple syrup. So the tree has hidden life flowing through it. Another aspect of the tree is that are the leaves sustaining the roots or are the roots sustaining the, the leaves? It's obviously both. It's obviously a system. Thanks to photosynthesis, the leaves draw in energy from the sun and store it in the roots. The roots draw up nutrients from the ground and feed the growing leaves. It's an exchange, it's, an, it's, a, it's a fully exchanging system. Now why is this important? One of the things that becomes clear to anyone who's had a mystical experience, and I'm going to make a blanket statement like that, is that God is not a static being. Right? When you have this experience, um, uh, even if you have an, uh, even if you have a, um, a vision of a being on a throne or whatever, you don't come away from that feeling like God was over there and I was over here. You come away from that feeling like, oh my goodness, everything flows from the source. And I am part of everything, and everything's part of me, and it flows from that mysterious source that, so that a static being, a commander who gives commandments in a literal sense, doesn't work for mystical descriptions of this mystical experience. What works, and one of the reasons why I think mysticism is having such a resurgence in these days, is because you understand the universe as a system of energy. Energy flowing in all directions, energy being given and returned. That's the only way you can understand it, the only way you can not understand. That, seem, that seems, that's the apparent truth. We live in a time of systems theory, right? Where we don't think of the earth 
as being a static ball with the cosmos circulating around it. Uh, the advent of modernity since Copernicus is this understanding that everything is moving around everything else. The understanding of modern sciences and of physics and particle physics is that everything is interchanging at all times. The understanding of modern cosmology, how we understand the universe, is that, is that we are stardust. And speaking of Woodstock, <laughs> we are golden and we have to get ourselves back to the garden. That's the modern perception, not just of mystics, but of how we view the world, how, how, the, the, how the, 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 our, uh, our, our general agreement. It, thanks to the scientific revolutions that have led us to this point, beyond the early scientific understanding of the world as mechanistic, uh, to a, a quantum understanding of the world as constantly in flux. That particles were light photons, and they come into being as particles, and then they, per everything, interchanging, interacting, all the time, a magnificent symphony of energy and motion. That's what we understand today as being the reality underneath the, the illusion we have of solidity and stability. In fact, I'll, I'll, we'll have one more thought, and then I'll be happy to uh, have you throw the, your thoughts in. Um, because thanks to that perception, I know that I'm sloughing off cells constantly. I know that the food that I've taken in from the earth is processing through me, I'm drawing life energy from it, and I will excrete the, um, uh, the stuff I don't need, but that excretion is actually going to feed some other part of the system. I understand that I'm part of a system. That's ecological awareness as well. And one of the reasons why I think myst mystical thought is making a comeback is because it fits much better than the old static ideas about a uh, deity that came before. Now, who had things to say? Yes. I was just uh, thinking about the Chinese you know, theories that they have energy flows. Right. And they, they, don't, they, they know that there's this other thing going on besides what we can see in the science. Uh, mm -hmm, world, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's energy. Right. And I'm saying that our scientists, she not just our, not just our vision, not just our mystics or religious thinkers, this is the place where religious and mystical uh, perception and scientific inquiry actually come together. Yes? What you're saying sounds like a description of somebody who takes LSD. <laughs> well, I would say, you'll forgive me, uh, if, but you don't have to forgive me. Uh, I'll say that the hallucinogenic turn on, tune in, drop out, <laughs> changed people's, enough people's perceptions in the 60s and 70s that it actually impacted the, 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 the way as a culture. Because many of, many of us, uh, uh, when I was in college, I dropped acid, and it was utterly illuminating for me. Um, it, was, it confirmed things that I already had um, intuited, because I just seemed to be wired that way. But it confirmed them for me. What's LSD doing to our brain and the opening the windows perception? I'm not sure. But I think that, and, and stuff's been written about this now, that the uh, psychedelic revolution actually jump-started the interest in spirituality in, in our country. 
all the new age bookstores and all the you know that psychedelics kind of like accelerated that. Yeah, uh, I think that not only the physical, but we could have a universal knowledge. I mean, I'm always constantly fascinated by spiders spitting webs, birds building nests. I mean, where did they get this knowledge from? There's got to be some source to it. And I was wondering if you ever read this, the book, The Secret Life of Plants. Because plants a long are time very, ago. very sentient of what goes on around them. You right. Know, they're living things, too. Yes. So everything's, so let me put it that way. Everything's alive. Even the dead things are turning into something else and part of a much greater system. I also find that very comforting myself because... Uh, you know, I'm part of everything. I was talking to my 15-year-old daughter who's at the perfect age for struggling with this. Uh, and uh, um, the reason I brought that up is that I had an aha talking to her. Uh, she, cause she, and she was saying, um, I, I was saying some people are terrified of death because they think, and this was true of her grandfather who was a um, physicist, um, he was absolutely convinced that there he was going that what was going to follow death was nothing. He was absolutely convinced. How he got so convinced, I'll never know. Um, now he wasn't terrified of dying, but for him it was the end. And I said to her, "Why should he think that after he dies is nothing? After he dies, he becomes part of everything again." And that's not a spiritual concept. That's that's the facts. Uh, you know, I said, when you die, you become part of everything again. I like that idea. How does that happen? How does what happen? Part of everything again. Well, your cells, re it, you, you feed the flowers. Right. Well, you're, you're right. contained in a coffin that's sealed. Don't get you're buried right. that way. <laughs> in time, you're the right. coffin will rot. And there's a right. In time, the, 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 that stupid... Um, uh, cement vault that some funeral home invented in order to get more money out of you <laughs> will crumble. In time, no matter how many barriers they are, we will once again rejoin the stream of life in some unknown way. That's the truth. That's not mystical thinking. Do you understand what I'm saying, Leah? Yes, I guess on some level I do. <laughs> okay. Because I'm just speaking on the most... So I was having this conversation with my daughter, and I said, well, Opal was a scientist. Why didn't he, why didn't he say... He was prejudiced. I said, to, I said to my daughter, he was really biased to have that. He, the truth is, none of us know what's going to happen. And, but by observing, as a good scientist, I would say I'm not going to be part of nothing. I'm not going to be nothing. I'm going to be part of everything again. And the good news was she took great comfort from that because... I wasn't trying to tell her there's a God and you're going to blah, blah, blah. I was just like talk. Anyway, it was a good conversation. Um, yes? So I get why we have to close our eyes for the Shema, because we have to close our eyes to the illusion. That's that, right. That everything, you know, but I... So the, I have to explain. So when we recite the Shema, which says, listen, everybody, yod Hey vav Hey, that mysterious voice that spoke out of the burning bush, is, is one, is our God, and is one, oneness. So we traditionally cover our eyes, according to the Talmud, in order to be able to concentrate on that and not be distracted by all the uh, 
uh, ways that it doesn't appear that way in our world of me and you, light and dark. Yes, go on. So I really don't like that the illusion, that when we incarnate, the illusion is so, becomes so intensely powerful and strong uh -huh. that we have to fight or take drugs or something to even break through that illusion that you're there and you're you and I'm me and we're not part of one. I really don't like that and it makes me angry. So we have to right. work so hard to get so, spiritual traditions, like Jewish mystical traditions, are ways that our ancestors tried to share with us uh, road signs play to how to remember that experience in the midst of our li in the midst of our lives like that. That's right. That's right. Now. <coughs> Back to the tree. So I describe systems. Jewish mystics describe God as energy, an energy system, which we are part of, which everything is part of. And they search for metaphors to describe this system. And their favorite metaphor is a tree. Because, except that they invert it. I'll explain. They say the roots of the tree of life are in heaven. When they say in heaven, they mean in the unseen realms. So the roots are in the unseen realms. And the flow of life flows up from those unseen realms or down or outward because metaphors are going to, you know, are metaphors. And, uh, and nourish the world. There's a tree, remember there's a tree of life planted in the middle of the garden, and from the middle of the garden a stream flows, and so all of that metaphors are the Zohar, which is this, the most famous Kabbalistic text, favorite image. They're always saying, oh, the river's flowing from Eden. They love that. They say it over and over again. Whenever they're, when, when, whenever they're having a great experience, over and over in the Zohar, and I'm not a Zohar scholar, but I've gotten to, to it's, it's way too esoteric for me, but I've had good teachers who showed me the, the parts I can understand. Anyway, and we are the visible part of the tree. The leaves and the fruit. Right? Mm -hmm. But the, if we, you know those, those, all those fables about the, I know there's a fable about Coyote from the Native American who um, uh, is going to share a, a beautiful fruit tree with some other animal that talks. And I can't remember which, the hare or something like that. I don't remember. And then Coyote thinks he's really smart. And he says, hey, I'll take the top half of the tree and you take the bottom half. And then I'll get all the fruit. And so the, the other character who knows what's going to happen says, okay. Coyote takes the top of the tree and then he consumes it all and it's done whereas the tree branches and sprouts again the lower half uh it's that kind of uh, that kind of idea we forget that it's all part of a unseen system of roots and those roots are called shorashim in hebrew and the roots are in heaven as it were <coughs> uh, so we are the fruit however and the leaves however because it's a system we're not separate from the tree. We are part of... Now, think of the word flow 
and think of the word influence. Okay, to influence means to draw the flow. We also, our yearning draws the flow from the roots so that we can blossom. But at the same time, our blossoming provides energy that flows back into the roots. In other words, it's an ever-flowing system. You can't cut one off from the other. Uh, um, and so systems theory of everything influencing everything else, because then eventually the fruit's going to drop, it'll go back into the soil and nourish the roots again. And so we always are part of the system. Down again, life, death, as we perceive it, but always truly just life, right? Death is part of life, and I don't mean that in a, a platitudinal way. I mean it literally. Up, we blossom, we live, we drop, we get absorbed, we feed the roots, the roots draw us. That's the tree of life. The tree of life is, an, is the Kabbalistic understanding of what God is. And if you try to isolate any part of that tree, you, in traditional Jewish language, you are committing idolatry because um, you have tried to cut off one part of the system and identify it and, and uh, hold it, and it's not going to be able to bear life. It's a false god. Does that make sense, everybody? Yes. Um, yes. I was just going to uh, mention, uh, the tree also is a source of life, isn't it, because it gives oxygen as well? Well, that's just the most beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, when the trees provide oxygen, this is back to systems theory in general. We now know that the trees absorb carbon dioxide and, and um, exude oxygen. We absorb oxygen and exude carbon dioxide. We in the trees are another system. Um, we, we're not disconnected from the trees. We're intimately connected to the trees. Our lives depend on each other. And this is what we would call today ecological awareness. And again, I'm positing to you that, in its, that that is so comparable to the way Jewish mysticism tries to describe God's relationship to creation, not as a mechanistic uh, builder, but as a flow of energy that never ceases. So much so that the Zohar, and I loved this when I learned it, Olam Haba is usually translated as the world to come, meaning we're going to get there by and by, right? But you could also translate, and the Zohar does this, the Zohar is a medieval text that becomes sort of the centerpiece of Jewish mysticism. Uh, the Zohar calls the Olam Haba, and if you know Hebrew, you'll get this, the world that is coming meaning the world that is always coming. The Olam Haba is the world that's flowing into us at all times. And I, I, I really love that. So there's that tree image. Did you want to ask something? Well, I'm saying, does Judaism have any, any 
anything about cutting cutting down a real tree, a real tree that's very healthy and vibrant, and nothing's wrong with it except it's taking up your whole yard. <laughs> yes, yes, there are very significant. Remember, Judaism was originally a pastoral and agricultural economy in in the in the land of Israel, and um, fruit trees. Um, if you destroyed a fruit tree, that was considered a crime. Because how, how can you destroy it? How could you do that? Uh, uh, so there's a deep awareness. And the, the holiday of Tubishvat emerges with that awareness, about the, the, especially about fruit trees. Other trees less so in Judaism, but uh, fruit trees are considered to be, uh, you know, exceedingly not just value, but um, not just monetary value, but uh, um, inherent value. Is the Tubishvat Seder a, an expression of. Uh, Anybody, everybody know what a Tubishvat Seder is? Um, let, let me explain. Tubishvat is the. <coughs> our, is, in the Talmud, Tubishvat is a um, legal holiday. It was like April 15th. Uh, in Israel, where you would make an assessment, a census of your fruit trees, and then know how much your tithe was going to need to be. Okay, so it was called the New Year for Trees in the Talmud, and it was pretty much faded away out, out in exile, but it still existed in our sources. It was the Jewish mystics in the 1600s, centuries and centuries later, 1500 years later, who said, "What a great holiday!" a holiday to celebrate the new year for trees. And they created what was called a Tu B'Shvat Seder, where they celebrated the fruit of trees. Some of us have been into them where you eat, you know, dates and boxer and, uh, you know, carob. And uh, when I was a kid, that's what we did. And you planted trees in Israel. Everybody remember planting trees? Planning, buying trees to sure. plant in Israel on Tubishvat with the I had dimes that I would put in the little picture of the tree, and then you get a certificate. That was as actually a Zionist reinvention of Tubishvat uh, to make it the New Year for trees because we were replanting in the land of Israel. Prior to that, before there was any idea of replanting in Israel, Tubishvat was a mystical holiday where every tree was a representative of the tree of life. And we were eating from the tree of life. And can you imagine, if you're using your imagination to eat fruit and imagine that you're not just ingesting a beautiful piece of fruit, but you're ingesting from the tree of life? It's just such a beautiful idea. I love Tubishvat Seders because, again, I like to hit every level of a holiday that's been around for 2,000 years. Mm. In Jewish mysticism, so you, you get the image of the tree, a system always flowing, not unidirectional, that's very important, but not only does God, as it were, the infinite, flow into us, but we give back to the infinite. Not only does the infinite flow here on its own accord, but because it's a system, it's our desire that draws and you know there's a famous rabbinic saying 
more than the calf wants to suckle, uh, the cow wants to give milk, right? And any moms here who breastfed know what that's about. Um, uh, that there's this understanding that we're a system, that the baby's cry stimulates the milk, right? So again, every metaphor that mystics use is going to be drawn from human experience. So if, if it's the nursing mother and the baby that captures that quality of, of mutual desire, beautiful. If it's a tree, beautiful. If it's no metaphor is going to be comprehensive. But also, there's no way to describe this experience in anything but our, our, our human experience. Mm -hmm. So the metaphors will take us to a certain place, and we go, yeah, yeah. And then if we get stuck on that metaphor as being, oh, now I know what God is, then we will, it's not, it's an, because God is, a, because in mystical thinking, God is an energy system, you're never going to be able to finally pin it down. What you can do is participate in it. Right? And when we participate in it, I know for myself, I feel filled up and enriched. Right? I don't feel cut off and dried out. That's how I know I'm connecting. You know, it's like something is sustaining me. My heart is opening. My breath's you know, my tears are flowing. Life is flowing through me. Let the metaphors begin, you know. Um, and, uh, and the reason I wanted to share about the tree of life is it becomes the central metaphor. We influence the divine flow through our yearning and our desire as much as the divine flow influences us. And we are in an eternal and cosmic relationship with the source of all. We are manifestations, we are fruits of that unseen root system. But the root system needs us, right? If, we don't, if the fruit doesn't fruit and blossom and fulfill our role in the system, the roots are going to die. So it's a, it's a total feedback loop. Yeah? The, the Jewish mystics, uh, is this reserved for Jews in their minds, or is this a universal... So then we have to talk about eras, right? Because Jewish uh, epics of history, because um, until the modern era, there was an understanding of the, that God created all human beings, but we're part of the special drama. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, uh, it's not that all souls emanate from the root of the tree of life, in the supernal realms. But the Jewish branches are where the, action, the most important action is, right? And so they're only talking about Jews by and large, even though they acknowledge that all comes from the one. It's only in the very modern era that these metaphors get extended. And that would be true of every mystical system, um, uh, that it acknowledges that every, it, you have to acknowledge that everything's part of everything if you're going to be doing this. So then, if you're in living in a time and place where, where it's still important to show that yours is the best or the most special, then you'll find a way to do it. Uh, from my perspective, that's, that, that's an, that diminishes it. Uh, 
then there's a lot of literature written about the dangers of mysticism, right? You shouldn't study mysticism until you're, um, you know, first of all, it was reserved for males, and you shouldn't do it until you're married and have children or until you're 40 years old. There are statements like this. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Uh, what do you speculate why they put that restriction on it? To study this stuff and to spend your time. They want to make it so mysterious <laughs> that you got to go through a certain kind of life till you're mm -hmm. able to grasp it all. Well, I think that's true. Mm. I think there's a you, you have to have experienced enough life to understand what it means to be exiled from the garden and what it means to want to return and to understand how how many bad things can happen in life and uh, yeah. Could it lead you down a Yes, that was definitely part of concern. There you are, say, in uh, Provence or, or uh, uh, Spain, um, uh, Andalusia, in the 12, 1300s, where there are Muslims and there are Christians, and there are, the Muslims are, you know, there's mist, everyone has their own system, and they're communicating with each other during this golden age of Spain. Maybe they wanted to make sure that that uh, Jews were grounded in Jewish community and Jewish life and Jewish practice before they sort of let them know that, really, guys, um, this is going to blow you out of the water, but it's all one. But I thought that was a secret system that people were not allowed to even know it. They were allowed if they were initiated. That's what I'm saying. It was a guarded until the night, until the, the 1960s, <laughs> this was considered knowledge that was esoteric, meaning hidden. It had to be guarded. Um, some of us here might be people who have had powerful mystical experiences. From that perspective, again, it's like dropping LSD. It's like people who weren't ready dropped LSD had an experience where they realized that all of our social mores, all of our hierarchies, all of the get a job, and the, all of it is just a way of doing things. It's, it's not like the, you know, you, you don't have to do it that way. In fact, who said? Right? That's part of the psychedelic revolution. I'm dropping out of this. I think that's a great analogy, actually. I think... I think psychedelics cause people to have a, a chemically induced spiritual experience of seeing the whole interconnectedness and the actual functional meaninglessness of all our social mores. You know, so so in you know in 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 uh, uh, the uh, uh, in Tonga they have families that aren't nuclear families and where everybody raises each other's kids and so and so and so. Who made the rules here? Everything's all love anyway. Um, let's all just form a commune and live together. Right? That's the danger, in a sense, of revealing this awareness to someone who's not ready to integrate it into the fact that yeah, and also you have to go shopping, and it's it, there's nothing wrong with with uh, 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 monogamous love, and there's you know, 
that, okay, I'll play this way, and then keep playing. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that would be a good way of describing it. In, in Leviticus, when Aaron's sons witness Aaron going through these intense preparations and then invoking the divine fire down to the altar, and it consumes the offering on the altar. And Adav and Avihu, the, it says right after that, they grabbed the fire pans with the incense, and they went in to do it, and it consumed them. And... Uh, it's an amazing story. What was going on there? If you read it as a spiritual story, they weren't ready for the experience. Mm -hmm. And it blew them out of the water. Um, the 60s are a great analogy for this. I had a friend who was at Columbia uh, and uh, in graduate school. It, at, you know, when was the height of the... 68, I think. Yeah. And uh, wound up joining the protest, forgetting all about school, never got his PhD till like 25 years later, which was what he was trying to do at the time. It was like, woo! You know, anyway, uh, you can tell me your 60s stories too. Um, Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Man, time flies. I want to show you a piece of paper. Let's pass it around. Would you, um, there's enough of them. Darn, I, I wanted to get to this sooner. I lost track of time. I'm just going to walk around because it's a little faster. I bet it's exactly the right number of lists. I doubt. That looks familiar. I guess next time we'll spend a little, we'll, we'll okay. Okay. Oh, there were enough. There's plenty. Here. Great. Anyone else want one? Okay, we're good. The, um, during the Jewish mystics, especially in starting in the early Middle Ages, start developing a this, which is called the tree of life. It's a, it's, um, and it's also known as the ten sfirot. A sfirah is a, um, either an integer or a, um, um, quality, a sfirah, a, um, a, um, Hmm? An attribute. Attribute. Um, now, this, this will be fun. We'll, we won't finish this today. We'll do some more next time. Um, what I want to explain is this is not the only way that the Sfirot get depicted, but it's the most common way, and I'll explain why. You will see diagrams of the Sfirot where... They are nested in each other, right? And so you'll see what you'll see ten circles with uh, the center being the top one here called crown, and the other is emanating 
from it. That's another way to describe it, from like the inside out, rather than from the top down. Again, we're so inclined to think of God up there and us down here that this becomes predominant. But it's also called the tree because, again, trying to mess with us so that we don't, we don't reify, we don't make the metaphor real. They talk about this tree as having that the roots are at the top. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm-hmm. That's the unseen realm. So they turn the tree upside down in order to keep us on our toes so that we remember not to, uh, just to, just to jiggle the metaphor up for us. So one of the root central understandings in Judaism that is particularly the Jewish way is that it says God spoke and the world came into being. God said, let there, Baruch Sha'amar Olam in the morning prayers. Let there be light, but it doesn't say let there be light. It says Yehi Or, which is more like light be. Right? It's not, it's the command form in the, in the Hebrew. Light, and he says the word light, by Yehi Or, and there was light. So that the Jewish tradition understands the act of speech as being creative. Uh, and, the, and then it sees the letters of Torah as being potent, as having potency. Not the black letters on the white parchment, but what they call the black fire on the white fire that is what's behind the Torah. So they're not being literalists when they say this. And so the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, gains potency so that when it says, and talk about creative misreadings, Breshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Right? Breshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created et hashamayim ve'et ha'art. What's that word et in Hebrew, everybody? It's just, it just precedes a direct, a direct object. object. That's right. It's a word in Hebrew that doesn't exist in English. However, the mystics have a ball with this because remember, every letter in the Torah for the mystics is a manifestation of, of, of divine meaning. They say et is aleph and taf. What does that mean, Aleph and Tuff? Beginning and the end. Right, A to Z. So, Et, in the beginning, God created the Aleph Bet, the building blocks of creation, and made the heavens and made the earth with the letters. It's this wonderful, it's this wonderful, playful way of describing it. Um, And, uh, Well, yes, abracadabra. Are you familiar with that phrase? Abracadabra is an Aramaic phrase that I learned about a long time ago. Abracadabra. Bara is what in Hebrew? Create. Create. Bara. 
Baraz create. Dabra, speak. Yeah, to say or speak. So Aramaic is close to Hebrew. Abra kadabra means I create as I speak. Then it becomes a magic word. Isn't that cool? I love that. So the tree of life is the building blocks of creation. And so there are 10 locations, 10 sfirot, that you can see in those circles. <coughs> sfirot also means integers because it's 0 through 9, right? The 10 integers. 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So the 10 integers, and as it happens, the way they did this quite intentionally, and you can count later, is that there are 22 paths depicted in this chart by those um, channels. And they're not called paths, they're called tsinorim, tsinor. Tsinor is a channel, a pipeline. So these are, now you have to imagine that they imagined God not as a singular being, sort of a, a, a discrete being, but as a constellation of qualities connected by channels. Each channel is one of the 22 Hebrew letters. When you add it up, 22 and 10 is 32. That's very important because 32, for those who know Gamatra, is Lamed Bet. What does that spell? Heart. heart. Right, live, heart. And so uh, that's quite intentional. And uh, do you know that I learned that the last letter of the Torah in Deuteronomy and all that Moses had done in the, uh, before Yisrael, the last word of the Torah is Yisrael, and it ends with a Lamed. And the first word of the Torah, Breshit, is a Bet. So, when you, on Simcha Torah, when you read the beginning and the end, and you line up the very end of the Torah, and the, you get Lev, which I really like. Uh, so, so, one of the aspects of the Kabbalistic chart, that is the most common Kabbalistic chart, is that it contains all the letters and all the numbers. That's the Jewish way of saying all the building blocks of creation. Does that make sense, everybody? That's the Jewish way of saying it. Because the Jewish way is to ascribe creative power to the, the, to the letters and the numbers out of which we create language and we create our world. And that's really true, interestingly enough. Once we name something, it changes it, right? Adam's in the garden, and God brings all the creatures before Adam, and Adam gave each of them a name. Do you remember that line? But there was no fitting companion for Adam, and God says, I need to make a, help, a um, counterpart, Ezra Kenegdo, to, 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 meet, to meet Adam. Um, Adam's act of naming is an act of describing understanding, owning, until something has a name, we don't know, we can't, so it's so important in Judaism, this act of naming. So furthermore, this description of God that's contained in this diagram has, is, con is continually in motion. 
energy comes from the top, which is also known as nothingness. Do you see how it says at the top, Keter, which means crown, mm-hmm. is also has other names, Ayin, which means nothingness or Ein Sof. Okay, nothingness doesn't mean an, an absence of anything. It means no thingness. It's beyond our capacity to name. There are realms that we might even experience in moments of bliss or higher awareness or ecstasy, which we can't bring back into the world of language. They exceed our ability to name. Yet we know that's where it all comes from, or that's what surrounds it all, or that's the wellspring that spring, that from which it all flows, or that's the tree in the middle of the garden and we're just drinking its water. It's like, it says that God placed two fiery swords, and it's cherubim with fiery swords whirling, and we couldn't get back to the tree. It's that understanding that You perceive it, but you can't name it. You can't bring it into this world. That's considered to be the most, I guess the word would be, sublime element of the experience of life. Right? But in the Jewish tradition, that experience is in constant interaction with all these other aspects, which we'll explore in two weeks. Uh, that eventually bring us down to the place called Malchut and below, which is where corporeality has manifested out of the flow, where the light, the photons, have become manifest as particles, where we can, where the laws of physics start to apply, where, you know, the world that we know of, and yet behind this world always, um, that God is continually renewing, that's from the morning prayers, you continually renew the world with your energy. It's happening now, it's happening now, it's happening now. It didn't happen then. The story is happening now. Once upon a time is now, now, now. And we and mystical mystical speculation is wanting to plumb the depths of that now, that mystery, that life seems to be emerging from at all times, that really fits in again with our modern understanding of of uh, life as an energy system, not as a static or contained um, creation that a mechanistic creator set into motion. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm. Um, so mystical awareness and our contemporary understanding of how the cosmos works actually mirror each other in many ways. I used up all my time. Let's, I'll, I'll bring more of these next time. We're gonna, we'll meet in two weeks. A couple more comments? Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, the blessing before and after a Torah portion, is that the reason why we, we say it in the present tense? Yes. Baruch Atadonai noten ha-Torah. Blessed, this is the before and after the Torah reading. Who it doesn't say Baruch Hatoranai, Shenatan Hatorah, who gave us the Torah. It says Noten Hatorah, who gives us the Torah. And again, the spiritual understanding of that 
is that that's because it's always been given to us if we if we but listen right and that's a line from the torah yes i have a question which i don't expect you to answer now but if, if it's not something you can address the next time which is one of the things that's always sort of bugged me about this yeah is that it just seems random except for the keter and the mahut, it seems really random and that the the things that are assigned to the different sphero also seem lovely but random and like they could have picked so the, oh, let's talk about that next time. I have that some. Could have been picked, and I, I'm, I, I just—it's hard for me to sort of like. Yes. The main thing to understand is that this is poetry, not prose. Uh-huh. So that I don't know if they had, I don't know if it emerged out of somebody's imagination and then took root in the Middle Ages amongst the mystics. We, we can't answer that question, but it wasn't, def- descri- it wasn't put together as a, um, a system you could defend, and you could make up your own. Uh-huh. And one of the things to look at on this sheet, and we'll talk about this next time, is that the reason I gave you this sheet is that each sphera has many, many names. Um, and those names are actually listed next, some of those names are listed next to the, because this was more like a, um, a fractal or a hologram. That just as the human being is, so is nature, so is God. And so what they're doing is something very, very uh, poetic and associative, much more than linear and uh, just, and trying to uh, come up with a system. That's why diagrams are dangerous. Because we see it on a piece of paper and we say, oh, so this is the tree of life. And it's actually for our contemplation more than our didactic education. So let's talk about that more next time. Um, it's always the danger of making diagrams and coming up with the seven rules of this. And yeah. Yeah, you can make it as a, an artwork. It's an amulet. It's artwork. It's oh, it's the human being, by the way. Uh, well, I'll sh- I got okay. We'll have some more fun next time. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Don't come.